and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Eric Knight. And I'm Andrew Nichol. And so on the show, we're talking about the CoreLogic Best of the Best report. Now, this is a report that's released by our friends at CoreLogic, where they detail and ramp up the year of 2020 by talking about the top yielding suburbs in the country, the lowest yielding suburbs, which ones have grown in value the fastest and the slowest, and also where do properties take longer to sell and which sell really, really quickly. So we're going to take you through this data. And I think what's most important is not what the suburbs are, but the trends. When we start talking you through the trends and the data, it'll make really plain some of the things that we tend to say on this show. First up, Andrew, take us through the highest gross yields of the country. So Runanga, never even heard of it. You can tell what kind of investor I am when I've never even heard of it. Uh, whereabouts is that, Ed? So that's in Grey District, which is in the West Coast. Right, makes sense. And the yield is 10.3%. And it's kindly got median house value there, $145,250. It's amazing when we talk about million dollars being the median house price in Auckland to think you can buy something for 15% of that down in the West Coast. Now, what's really interesting is all of the top 10 suburbs with the highest gross yields are really cheap suburbs. So if you want to get a really high gross yield, you've got to be investing in much, much cheaper areas. One that I know well, because I grew up not too far away from there, was Partia, which is in South Taranaki, an 8.8% gross yield. The price on that, or median value, this is just from March, because I haven't updated my data, slap me on the wrist, is 154k there. Cobden, which was the second highest gross yield suburb at 9.8%, 155k back in March. So there are definitely properties you can buy that are really cheap within New Zealand, and they'll get really good gross yields. They clearly just just haven't had that same amount of capital growth in dollar terms. Now, what I want to do is talk about the lowest gross rental yields. Generally, the areas with the lowest rental yields are the most expensive suburbs. And that's because you just don't have as many people renting there. You've got a lot of people who are owner-occupiers, not a lot of people renting. So, And also, because rent only has so far that it can go, when I often do rent comparisons around the country, I kind of say that rent's $500 a week plus or minus a couple of hundred dollars. Well, that's where the middle of that bell curve is. You can have something rent out for $2,000 a week week, but there's only a couple of those properties. Similarly, there's only a couple of properties that might rent for $200 a week. For example, even if you look at Runanga, the highest gross yielding suburb, even though houses are really cheap there, 145 odd K, they're still renting on average for $290 a week. So the suburb with the lowest gross yield was Omaha up in Auckland. This is where all the rich people own their holiday homes, if I can say that. (laughs) And the median house value there in March was $1.8 million. It's quite a holiday home. I know John Key had his holiday home up there. So it's the most expensive suburb in Rodney, which is northern Auckland. Rental yield there, 1.4%. Now, of course, one thing that's important to say is the median value might be $1.8 million, but if median rent's only five or six hundred dollars, those probably aren't the sort of properties that are being rented out for five or six hundred dollars. That's right. And there might only be a couple of properties there that are actually being rented out. So it skews the numbers, right? Right. So you might think that the rental yields are low. In practice, they're probably not that low. But looking at the numbers, even if you accounted for that, we'd still expect these places to have some of the lowest gross yields. So Calvin Heights, which is in Queenstown, 1.5%. That's the 
most expensive suburb in Queenstown Lakes District at just under 1.8 mil. And Hahe is the third lowest yielding suburb, which is in Thames Coromandel, again 1.5%, most expensive suburb in the Waikato at 1.1 mil. And actually interesting about the Kelvin Heights and for Queenstown, 1.5%, I'd be interested to see how that's changed in the last 12 months pre-COVID because Queenstown, generally speaking, has had pretty good yields. That's one of the things that despite it being so expensive to buy in, it was quite attractive to investors because yeah, it's expensive but it gets a really good yield like Wellington I guess and so people could afford to hold on to an expensive property there. And yes, Calvin Heights, most expensive suburb in Queenstown so always going to be the biggest gap but I'm surprised it's as big a gap as it is. So the main things to think about there, if you want really, really high gross yields, again it shows in the data, really, really cheap small towns is where you're going to be looking at. If you're looking at really expensive properties, that's where you're going to have a low gross yield. So a key principle we wrap it on about, this is where you see it in the data. Just one thing though, I've been working with an investor, she's just settled on another rental property that we've helped recommend for her and she um, was telling me about one of the properties that she owns, I can't remember the area because I'm terrible remembering these high yield properties and it's basically a gang town and she's a policewoman so she knows how to manage these people as well as anyone could she just can't even sell the property it's worth like $45,000 or something like that and gets a really really good yield but she just can't be bothered anymore and I think it's even rented out to a gang member or something and they take actually okay care of it but it's just not an investment for what she wants to do going forward. Now let's talk about which suburbs grew the fastest. So the area that grew in value the fastest is Outer Kaiti which is in Gisborne followed by Tamarau and Kaiti itself. So all three of those suburbs which are in Gisborne grew by over 30% each. Now, of course, Gisborne has been an area that shot up in value significantly over the last three to five years. And so it's unsurprising that Gisborne would feature so much in the top 10. What was more surprising for me is another couple of small towns in South Taranaki, which I grew up around. So Waverley in South Taranaki increased by 27.6%. And Manaya, home of the great Yarrow's factory, brood capital of the world, grew in value by 24.4% over the last 12 months. It seems no coincidence to me that Ed pitches on about uh, Tarantaki on uh, the podcast and it's shot up so much in the last 12 months. To be fair, it probably only takes about three sales in (laughs) order to push the average up. But what I do need to mention, one thing that helps small towns like a Waverley and a Manaya feature at the very top of these rankings is that the values, again, are so small. So Back in January, the average Manaya house was worth 178k. Average Waverley house was about 189k. So both well under 200k. So if you have a 27% or a 28% increase on that, it might be a $52,000 gain. Now that's still not something to be sniffed at. Any investor would be happy with that. But if that was the same gain applied property, property on an Auckland property, it would be much less remarkable. Yes. Now the reason I just mentioned that is that it's much easier for smaller suburbs to increase in value quite quickly in percentage terms because in terms of actual money it's not as big. That's right. And then let's talk about the lowest 12 month change. So number one for the lowest is Lake Hayes at negative 10.9% change. Number two, Queenstown. Number three is Arrowtown which is negative 5.6%. Now those are all in Queenstown. Not really that remarkable. Most interesting, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is Fendleton. I just 
Christchurch is down 3.6%. So this is another suburb where all the rich people live in Christchurch. <laughs> people are going to start picking me up on this, but it's true. That's where the rich uh, people yeah, live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be fair, it is the most expensive suburb in Christchurch. I, th- I think, I think Scarborough is the most expensive, but Fendleton's not that far behind. Now, I found this really interesting, especially since the median sale price in Canterbury is up about 10% year on year. Let me ask you this. What do you think is pulling down Fendleton median values? Well, I actually wonder whether or not there's still quite a lot of earthquake damage houses that people have held on to for a long period of time. I know of probably five or six people, just myself, that live in that area that have dug their toes in when it comes to negotiating with their insurance company for the settlement around AQC. So I wonder whether or not there's a bit of that. It does seem, just based on what I know anecdotally about the area, that seems surprising to me. So I'd say there's probably some devil in the detail there. I wonder as well whether there may be more properties that are being built. So if you take a big $3 million house that's on a whole heap of land, pull it down and build three still really nice yes. properties, but cheaper properties than that, that would pull the median value yes. down because it's adding stock at a cheaper price compared to that that's, median. That's probably correct. So it's always interesting. The data can tell you one thing, but once you read into it a bit more, perhaps there's something else within there and that's where you might use a bit more common sense to dig in. Now, last thing I want to talk about are the properties that took the longest to sell and the shortest amount of time to sell. Now, this is interesting again because you might invest in a property that's cheap, has a great gross yield, but with Andrew's investor who that she was just talking about, perhaps it might be very difficult to exit that investment. Now, there are some surprising things in here, so let's dig into the longest on the market, Andrew. Longest on the market is Port Waikato. Uh, median days to sell, 207. Quite a long time if you're wanting to sell a property. So there's obviously very few people there. Uh, next, you've got Karoro. No, Karoro. <laughs> you can leave that in for the enjoyment of the listeners. With 172 days to sell. And then you've got Cooper's Beach, which is far north, 140 days. So the key trend here is that all smaller towns in those smaller regions, Grey District, far north, the Waikato District, which of course is different from Waikato region itself. So smaller towns, less demand potentially within those markets. So if there's less demand of people looking for properties, that's potentially where it can take a long time to sell. Similarly, I'm expecting, and this is the same for the shortest number of days on the market, is there's probably not a lot of turnover within these markets. So there's probably a small number of properties being transacted over time. And that's just meaning that even if some sell really quickly, it only takes a few that take a long time to sell in order to drag that average up. So similarly, shortest on the market with an amazing seven days each where Heidelberg and Camberley and Hastings and East Gore and Gore all took seven days to sell. Seven days is crazy. Some areas in Palmerston North are taking eight days. And so I'm thinking, well, what is it driving these markets? Now, of course, Palmerston North, the whole Marawatu, Wanganui area has been very, very hot over the last couple of years. So there's a lot of demand there. Do you know the days? Where do they count that from? From something being listed to something going unconditional? Yeah, unconditional. Unconditional. Holy moly. That's even more remarkable when you think about it it that way, isn't it? Because you've actually had to have completed your due diligence because I doubt many properties are being sold at auction in Invercargill. I might be wrong. No, that'd probably be fair enough. Yeah. I suppose the main thing that was coming to mind for me is that if you're in a smaller market like Cobden, which has a low median value, so an extra five or 10k might get it over the line, but that's not actually a lot of money necessarily. So if you've got cheaper areas being transacted, then price becomes less of an issue. Other thing that I was thinking about is if you're in a smaller town where you mainly only have 
a couple of real estate agents. Yes. If I have a new listing, then I already know all of the buyers in the market. I can yes. get them to come to these yes. new properties yes. and transact yes. them. It's easier to get the knowledge out there. I mean, old Betsy at the uh, hair salon's already told Sally that the house is going on the market. We give a very poor impression of small towns. <laughs> is, are we wrong though? Look, all I want to say is I grew up in a small hey, town. I mean, I'm not. I'm not complaining because I'm going to sell up all my stuff now and move to Cobden. Cobden yeah, you're going to move to Cobden, but you might not be able to afford the rent because it's a 9.8% gross yield. Just before we wrap up, Andrew, what's the thing that's jumping out most at you? Or what's the biggest takeaway from this report from your perspective? I think it's just really interesting. And I did this exercise once when I just had a bit more time. I remember sitting with the Property Investor magazine and highlighting the top yielding places and then the top places for growth and just seeing that inverse correlation and you always need to figure out what kind of investor you are and what you're looking to achieve and don't get suckered into someone else's model for you. Go onto the property investors forum and people say, oh, I wouldn't ex- uh, accept anything other than a you know 7.5% gross yield. That's great if that's for you, but it's not for me and it's certainly not for a lot of the investors that I work with. We're looking for high capital growth and if you want capital growth, you need to sacrifice on yield. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I think taking the principles that we talk about and actually seeing it in the data is very satisfying and then also seeing how the data changes simply based on when you're looking at an analysis like this, which is looking at changes within a property's value or a median rent, percentage changes will always be large when you're dealing in small numbers. So if you go from 100000 to 200000 or to $150,000 in terms of property prices, those percentage changes are very large, but the dollar values aren't. You will see a lot of outlying suburbs featuring within here simply because they're at either end of the bell curve. Let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you want to learn more about property with Andrew and I, why not check out the Property Academy video course? This is where we have 19 lessons which walk you through those fundamentals of property investment, those same fundamentals that we're talking about here now that get featured within this data. And Andrew even shares a screen with you to take you through some of those spreadsheets and analyses that he does. I'm going to drop a link to that in the show notes or just go to opuspartners.co.nz. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichol. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.